Amen. Good morning. Please take your seats. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be gathered together on this Lord's Day. Father, might our worship be in spirit and in truth. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive, to understand your word, Lord God, that we might apply it to our lives and that we might be made more like Christ. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is my great pleasure to be with you today. You may have remembered that my family and I uh, joined a few weeks ago uh, for Sunday school. My family is smarter than I am, and they are in Florida right now. They have avoided the snow, and they're with my wife's sister there. If you don't remember me, you may remember that I gave away delicious ramen noodles from the Philippines, so maybe at least that will spark a memory. Uh, my family and I have been church planters in the Philippines uh, for uh, over nine years now. And by God's grace and with the love and prayers and support of our gospel partners, we have seen two churches raised up, and we have three more church plants that we are now training elders for. We showed you a video, a short video of our ministry, and we hope that in that video that you might remember from a few Sundays ago, we highlighted that ordinary lives, just simple ordinary lives in the service of our extraordinary king, really matter. God uses our normal, flawed, ordinary efforts to bring the dead to new life, to comfort the grieving, and to bring hope to the hopeless. We wanted you to see the local church front and center. The church, of course, is the goal of missions. We want to see the church established, but it's also the means of missions as God uses his church to build his church. Now, our, the nine years that we've spent in the Philippines have been wonderful, full of gifts from the Lord, including our daughter Abigail, who many of you met a few Sundays ago. We didn't know that we needed a daughter, but God did know that, and we do praise God for his unending grace. But it's also been nine years full of loss and difficulty, deeply missing family and friends, our country and our culture, missing weddings and family deaths, I never met some of my nieces and nephews until this past Christmas. They're all grown now, and I didn't even know their names, to put the names with the face, to get a hug from them. And we struggle daily in a, in a different culture just to figure out life, to deal with different diseases. They have different germs in Asia. I don't know if you're aware of that, but we were sick in Asia from the different germs, and now we come back here and we get sick from American germs. There's death and disease. I've had to bury old people. I've had to bury young people. Uh, and there's plenty of disasters that go around. But these light and momentary afflictions do not cause us to lose heart. No, we look forward to the eternal, unseen things. Those are the souls that Christ is saving for his glory. And they are rewards for us, for the church, both the goers and the senders, as we work together together by God's grace for the sake of Christ, his anointed king. You may have remembered in our video that we put an epic score behind it. There was loud music, climbing music, and that was for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want to get people's attention. Number two, 
The music that I found was copyright free and had no charge to it, and I live on a missionary salary, so that was a reason. And then, actually, the, the main reason, the point is that I want to prepare you to hear about the king. Just Christmas has just passed, and we concentrated on Jesus' birth. And at his birth, there was singing and music to announce his coming. And when Jesus returns, there will be what? Trumpets. A mighty blast saying that the king has arrived. And there will be new songs sung in honor of his victory and in celebration of his wedding as he returns for his bride, the church. And the music that we put behind our video was not for our ordinary efforts, but they are for our extraordinary king. He deserves to have music played for him. There can be lots of good motivations for missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, there can be some less than honorable motivations as well. Like maybe you just heard epic music behind a missionary video and you thought, I can do that too. It's for adventure, to see the world, to prove my worth. Those are maybe not so great motivations. But there's good motivations as, as well. There are billions of people around the world who are sick and poor and oppressed and dying and they need help. And then even more than their earthly condition, they are rebels against the holy God. And they don't know the way of salvation. That leads us to heavenly motivations. Before he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, Christ Jesus gave the great commission to his apostles and through them to his church. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. This is the mission of the church, both back then when Jesus gave the Great Commission and even today. And as we're motivated by the king's command, the greatest motivation, the reason that we have epic music, is for the king himself. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The chief end of man, I, I know you will agree, uh, the purpose of my life and yours is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's the reason that we went to the Philippines. And that's why many have sacrificed to support us, is because Christ Jesus is worth it. That is what gets me out of bed every day, and that is what sustains us during difficulties on the mission field. I could not be motivated and sustained simply by my sense of adventure. Now, it is true, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be Indiana Jones, and maybe a little bit I still do. But... I'm much more happy now sitting on the comfortable couch watching Indiana Jones movies, Indiana Jones movies than going into uh, the adventure itself. I also can't be simply motivated by just loving people because I have known too many people, and they are much like me, selfish and sinful, and they will let you down. The only motivation, the only motivation that never fails is the glory of Christ because he will be glorified. I want you to see that today from Psalm 2. The second psalm is my favorite.
favorite psalm. And every time I read it, I want to tell the whole world about Christ Jesus. And I'm hoping that by God's grace, it will have the same effect on you today. So please open up your Bibles and turn to Psalm 2. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, Lord God. And we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to preserve and illuminate your word to us, Lord, that we might understand who you are, who we are, and how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. God, thank you. Please show us King Jesus today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the second psalm is a companion to the first psalm. They work together as a kind of preface to the psalms, teaching us how to read that book, those books. They are teaching us to read the Psalter both Christologically and eschatologically. So those are two big theological words, but basically, just like the rest of Scripture, when we read the psalms, we are supposed to think about Jesus. Also, we are supposed to see the end. That's the eschatology, as history is moving toward something, the return of the king. He will come and slay the dragon and rescue his bride. And this second psalm is also a royal psalm. It's got a focus on God's covenant with David and the Davidic kings, that David's son would sit on the throne to rule forever. It was a reminder to the kings of Israel, of their duty to bless Israel and the nations, that this was their purpose as kings of David in the line of Abraham. This was their covenant obligation. The hope of the nations were actually tied to the house of David. And even in ancient Israel, foreigners, Gentiles, could find God's blessing as subjects of God's king. This was a song, a psalm that was sung at important events like the coronation of a king, the crowning of a new king. But we can see as we read it that it's not limited to the struggles of human Davidic kings against their ancient Near East foes. There's something else happening here. 
This psalm clearly points to the Messiah. The one who has to be more than merely a man. More than simply a human king. If he's going to bring lasting joy to the nations. Our psalm has four stanzas. You'll see in your sermon notes it's divided into four parts. And we're going to hear four voices this morning. As we see the rebellion of man and we see God's response to that. We are going to first hear the world murmur. Then we will hear the Father speak. We'll hear the Son proclaim. And we'll finish with the Spirit's call. So let's start first with the murmuring. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? I told you that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were companions. And in Psalm 1, it talks about the blessed man. He's the guy who's more than just happy. He is enjoying God's favor and grace and everything that comes with it, with all that he is. In that Psalm, it says that he's murmuring also. It's the same Hebrew word, but in verse 2 of Psalm 1, it's translated as meditate. He meditates on the word of God day and night. He's pondering. He's musing, playing it over and over in his mind so much that it starts to come out of his mouth. That's the murmuring in Psalm 1. Here in Psalm 2, though, same word as the wicked people are raging, they are also murmuring. It's translated as plotting here, plotting. And so while the blessed man is meditating on God's word so he can obey it, the rebel nations are murmuring against it. And the rage is not just anger here. They're not just a little frustrated or a little upset. It's the gathering of a great mob with noise and confusion and chaos. The words used are supposed to make you picture a war horse. He's snorting from his nose. He's pawing at the ground and champing at the bit. This will show you my age and the fact that I haven't been in America in about a decade because what it makes me think of is Ray Lewis coming out of the tunnel. And he picks up the grass and he gets excited and he does his dance and he's getting everybody fired up because we're going to war. But here in the psalm, it's not just a battle on the gridiron. These nations are warring against God. They're warring against God. It's both the nations and the people. It is the pagan Gentiles and the people of Israel. They rage against God in killing his son. Thinking that it would hold Jesus in death and put a stop to his fame. Peter and John explicitly tie this psalm to Jesus' crucifixion. When they're praying in Acts chapter 4, they're in Jerusalem under persecution. They see this, pro this psalm as uh, David's prophecy of Christ's crucifixion when both the Gentiles and the people of Israel conspire to kill God's anointed. The place where they're praying, if you remember, it starts shaking. It starts shaking. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start to pray and they make a request based on this psalm. They say, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They don't pray for the persecution to stop. They don't even pray for their enemies to be destroyed. No, they pray for boldness, even in the face of suffering and persecution. Boldness in the gospel that saves, because their confidence is in their king. 
And this is the same prayer we have today. Boldness with the gospel, even when things seem to be against us. But the enemies still continue to plot. It says in the next line that the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The rulers of the ancient world represent their people. As the king goes, so goes the people. This includes both political and religious leaders rising up against Jesus and against the church as earthly kings and false teachers try, even today, to stop the spread of the gospel. John captures this in his gospel. Do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? People are excited and happy for that, but some people are not so happy about that. In fact, the Pharisees go right away to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and they conspire to kill Jesus. As the high priest Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather two into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day forth, they made plans to put him to death. Their plans were to put Jesus to death, but the Father's plan was always to give all of the nations to the Son, for him to gather them and rule them. And the Lord they are plotting against here is the Father. But you might notice in your Bible that the word anointed has a capital A. Now we know that in the Bible, prophets, priests, and kings are all anointed. Oil poured on their head to symbolize the Holy Spirit being poured out to sanctify them, set them apart, and equip them for their jobs. So this word here, Mashiach in Hebrew, or Christ in Greek, is the word anointed here with a capital A. That's because it's not just any king being anointed, but it is the king of kings. It is the Lord of lords. It is Jesus, God's chosen Messiah. And they murmur against him. They're plotting. They're thinking. They're ruminating. Their words are escaping from their clenched teeth and their pursed lips. And they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. They are cutting themselves off from the only hope that they have of blessing, the only hope of true and eternal joy and contentment that comes from knowing the true God. They think they are pursuing freedom. Throw off these bonds. Cast away these cords. But they have succumbed to the lies of the world, of sin and the flesh, and become its slaves. In fact, Hosea wrote about bonds and cords. When he spoke the word of the Lord, he said, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them to feed them. People think they are free, throwing off God's rules. They think they're finding their authentic self, actualizing. But really, they've been so blinded by the wickedness and the lies of this world. They've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And they have exchanged the truth for a lie, cutting themselves off from the love and kindness of the Father, cutting themselves off from the Christ who eases their burdens, cutting themselves off from the Spirit who feeds His people. 
But God does not leave them in that rebellion. As they murmur, the father shuts their mouths with his reply. And we come to the second stanza as the father speaks. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. First, we notice the difference in action. Do you remember when we talked about the rulers of the world? They were going chaotic. They were all over the place. A, a mob of war horses. But here, what is God doing? He's sitting. He's sitting in peace and authority. God is transcendent, far above us, not affected by human or created things. He's perfect and unchangeable. And this is the only place in the Bible where it says that God laughs. And what is he laughing at? The foolishness of men. And he puts them to shame. In, in fact, he puts them to shame in the most spectacular way. This psalm is anticipating the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the Father's anointed is vindicated and his enemies are put to shame. Here's how Paul writes about it in Colossians 2.15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, his chosen king. The very Messiah king they are rebelling against is the one who shames them with his ironic triumph through sacrifice. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is not the loving discipline that we know that comes from the Father's hand to us, his children. It's not correction, but it's condemnation here. The parallel phrases build on each other as we see in Hebrew poetry, speaking in his wrath, terrifying in his fury, intensifying the heat of his anger, boiling up. It's hot in the Philippines. But it's not as hot as my parents' living room was during the winter when we had a wood-burning stove. I had to chop many cords of wood, and you would have to put on gloves. I think they were made of asbestos. I'm not sure. But you would have to swing open this cast-iron gate, and the heat would rush out at you. Some people would have to leave the room it was so hot. It might singe your eyebrows off. That stove felt angry. It felt angry. But the heat of the wrath of God is like a thousand stoves, like a thousand suns. And when the Father speaks in his wrath, he doesn't even address the sins of the people, their foolishness and their vain blasphemies. He opens his mouth saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is the place of the temple. It's the place of the covenant presence of God. It's the place where God receives worship and he dispenses his blessings to his people. It is the earthly mountain that is pointing up to the heavenly reality. God has his chosen king and he has set his divine dwelling place. And the wicked, they're making plans, they're plotting, but it's too late. It's already set. It is finished. Sometimes even we think that we can thwart God's plans. In Sunday school today, I heard someone say, it's unbelievable that God can remove our sins, forgive our sins, and then forget them. Because they're always in our minds. 
We know that when we've fallen short, we know that the devil tempts us and whispers in our ear, you can't be forgiven for that. It's too bad. It's too much. But these are the lies of the devil. He also lies to us and says, don't witness to people. Don't tell them the good news because you're going to mess it up. And you're going to stop them from getting into the kingdom. It's going to be your fault. But he has set his king on his holy hill. Christ is building his church and he will save all that he has died for. His blood is sufficient. It is sufficient for you in your own salvation, your justification, and your sanctification. And it is sufficient to save others as well. God can and will use you as his ambassadors to speak his good news to others, to freely proclaim it to all that some might be saved. And these words that the Father speaks, they are sufficient. It is enough. The Father needs say no more for his words are powerful. You might remember he spoke just a few words at Christ's baptism and his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now as we move into the third stanza, let us listen to the son as he proclaims. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus tells of the Father's decree. Before the foundations of the world, our triune God covenanted. The Father gave a people to the Son. And the Son voluntarily, willingly secured those people by laying down His life in the Spirit on their behalf. The Son speaks what the Father has told Him. Today I have begotten you. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that the Son is not a created being. He is God, eternally generated from the Father, equal in majesty, in splendor, in glory, in power and authority. This is not about Jesus' earthly birth that we might associate with the word begotten, but this is about Jesus' crowning. It is fitting that the Son is the anointed one, being the Son fits him to be the one sent by the Father. And here Jesus is remembering his coronation. The Son of God and the Son of David, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's way back from Genesis 49. It was the same plan then. Christ is the ruler of the nations. This is always the way. And a coronation gift has been given from the Father to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. What did Jesus ask for from his Father? Well, if we go to his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he asks for a bride for his people out of the world, the nations. The Father has given them to him. Christ asks for their unity, for their sanctification, for their eternal life, and for a blessing that they might see and share in his glory. The Father has given the Son sheep from across all the nations. For Christ Jesus is too great to be simply the King of the Jews. 
Christ builds his church, though, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering and rebellion that must be overcome. While Christ rules at the right hand of his Father, interceding for his people, the king has also sent out ambassadors in the midst of the battle to offer the terms of peace to the rebels. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul and his companions were missionary church planters. We follow that same pattern today. We call our team OASIS, and that stands for Ordinary Ambassadors Speaking the Inheritance of the Son. It's based on this psalm. The only thing special about us is that we have a special message. We're ordinary, ordinary ambassadors. And our message is this that the nations belong to Jesus. They are his possession. We must proclaim this truth in the Philippines and here in Maryland. We must tell people that you are a rebel sinner against God. And God's king is coming back to claim his possession and to put down the rebellion. So beware. But there is hope. There is hope because ambassadors speak the words of the king and offer the terms of peace. You can be reconciled to God. You can know peace with him, but it requires unconditional surrender. Repent and believe. These words that we speak to Filipinos who have never opened the Bible before are the same words all of us need to hear today as well. This is why we go on mission, because our king has commanded us to take the good news to the ends of the earth, so that rebel sinners can find peace with the God they have offended. We are in a time now of grace, a time when sinners can be reconciled by the blood of Christ and be brought into his church. But there will come a time. There will come a time when the age of grace has ended and Christ returns to judge. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ continues to speak through his ambassadors today and, and some will respond to life and believe. And some will respond and reject the ambassadors and the king they serve to death. The day is coming when the terms of peace will expire, when the age of innocence is done, and we will experience the scene that John described in what was revealed to him. John writes, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, there is no one like our God. 
No one will stand before Christ, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is why we go on missions now. This is why churches like this support the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ going out to the nations. Because today is the day of salvation. But the day of judgment is coming. Friends, I don't know if Christ will return tomorrow or if he will return in 10,000 years. But I know that I've got about 70 to walk on this earth and I used up all, all, already more than half of them. So I don't know if you're in the same position of me, but how many days do we have left? Why would you delay in submitting to this king? If Christ is not glorified in your salvation, he will be glorified in your righteous punishment. And friends, pottery broken with iron cannot be repaired. We said that this psalm teaches us to read Christologically, to read eschatologically. There will come an end to this fallen world. But as we look forward, for those who believe, today is the day of hope. And here in the last stanza is where we hear the voice of the Spirit calling. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Just think about that for a minute. We've set up this scene where the rulers of the world are rebelling against God. God tells us he has set up his king. And now, how gracious is our God that his spirit would come and reason with us. He draws us to Christ, always thinking of Christ, speaking to us of Christ, reminding us of Christ. And as he does, the psalm has taken a shift from indicative to imperative. Indicative just means that it's telling us how things are. We've heard from the voices of sinful men, of the Father, of the Son. They describe how things are and how things will be. And now the imperative comes. It's a warning. It's saying this is what you should do. Given this reality, here is how you should react. Be wise and be warned. It is in your self-interest to submit. This is not just some human ruler that you can vote out of office or resist or overcome. No, he rules with a rod of iron that shatters. The Spirit is saying you have murmured long enough in your rebellion. Now, therefore, be quiet and listen. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Consider the God who is both great and good. He is so great, so terrifyingly holy and majestic that we tremble in fear. And yet, he is so good, so, so perfectly beyond our conception of good that we rejoice in serving him. This fear and trembling is not that chaotic panic of trying to throw off bonds. No, this is all and respect the proper emotions that are stirred up by being in the very presence of God. Right thinking, right belief leads to right acting. And those right actions are serving, obeying, rejoicing. It is time, church, to live for Christ, to serve and rejoice in Him. God is working in you, so live like that. Not in rebellion, resisting His Spirit, but in joyful submission, recognizing that you need His rescue, I need His rescue. And he came to save. Die therefore to sin and live 
to righteousness. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. My friends, if the Son is angry with you, who is left to intercede for you? Who will speak on your behalf? Who will plead your case? You're a sinner before God. You need a mediator because you cannot defend yourself. Remember that the Lamb of God is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and you cannot stand against His wrath and judgment. Your mouth should not be used to murmur against Him. Your mouth should be used for kissing Him. Silent submission. The Son first kisses us that we might kiss Him. His mercy comes before our response. And as He grants us eyes of faith that we might see Him for who He truly is, the King of glory and of refuge, He offers us His hand to kiss. And as you fall on your knees, as your head bows down, as as your lips move forward to kiss that hand in utter devotion and dependence, raise your eyes and see that the mighty fist that wields the rod of iron is also a tender, nail-pierced hand. The wounds, still visible in his glorified body, a place where blood flowed out for you. Touch his side and feel the cleft that is cut in the rock of ages for you and hide in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, there is no refuge from Him, but there is perfect refuge in Him. And in taking Christ to the nations, we might see that they too can take refuge in Him and be blessed. I hope that by God's grace, you have seen the things that have motivated and sustained us for nine years of church planting in the Philippines. The message that we take is not God loves you, and has a wonderful plan to your life. Just add him into the mix. No, our message is that there is a king in heaven who rules and reigns over all the earth. His coronation was on a cross. And he is returning to set things right and to rule the nations. And so humble yourselves or be shattered. And as we preach this message, his sheep hear his voice. And not only is this message for the lost, but this message is for us, for those who have taken refuge in him. As we go about our ordinary lives, you here in Maryland, us in the Philippines, we are sustained by knowing that Christ is king. I hope that that is your main application today, is to know that Christ is king. God uses the regular, everyday, ordinary, simple childlike prayers to our generous Father. For we are not extraordinary, but our King is. And so as I close, I want to share with you that we've gone through trials and tribulations. But when we have visa issues, Christ is on the throne. When Tatai Bang, our first local man to preach in the squatter area, gives his first sermon on a Sunday, and on the next Monday, he is beaten and arrested. Christ rules the nations. When we've taken people into our home to care for them, and they steal from us, 
Christ provides from his kingly storehouses. When a baby dies of measles, and I have to stand in a shack, and the tiny coffin takes up almost the whole space that they live in, with tears in my eyes, I can turn to his family and I can say that Christ reigns on high. And when my love for people runs out and exposes my selfishness and frustration, I know that Christ's kingly love never, ever fails. And so when your child is sick, when you lose your job, when relationships are, are difficult and when your sin tries to reach up and drag you down into despair, when you feel like the whole world is against you and your faith is belittled, let me tell you today that God has set his king on Zion's hill. There is hope, friends, in our reigning and our returning king. By his grace, may we continue to work together for the king and take refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. God, we do not put our faith and our trust in princes. We put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, your king, who you have set on Zion's hill. Lord, might we live as if we are servants and ambassadors for the king. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.